Good afternoon. I'm Jim Steubendick, the director of the Center for Great Plains Studies, and I want to welcome all of you to the first Paul A. Olson seminar in Great Plains Studies for this spring semester of uh, 2008. Doesn't spring sound nice? It doesn't look like it's spring when we look outside. I want to recognize one individual in the crowd, and that's Paul Olson. Paul Olson's sitting over here behind the, uh, the column, and uh, who the seminar series is named after, and Paul was the first director of the Center for Great Plains Studies. Well, this seminar is a cooperative venture between the Center for Great Plains Studies and the uh, Water Center, and I'd like to introduce Kyle Hoagland, the director of the Water Center, who will introduce our speaker. Thank you all for coming. It's a record crowd, so great to see you all here. Ann Bleed was appointed director of the Nebraska Department of Natural Resources by Governor Dade Hyman in January 9th of 2007. She served as acting director of the department beginning in August 2005 and has been with state government since 1988. First served as state hydrologist in the Department of Natural Resources, or in the Department of Water Resources, sorry, since 2000. When the department merged with the NRC, and after the merger, Ann assumed the role of deputy director. So she's been around for a long time in this, in this role. Among other duties, she's been a member of the negotiating teams that successfully developed settlements, interstate lawsuits before the U.S. Supreme Court, both the North Platte River and the Republican River. Prior to her, her uh, employment with the state, Ann was assistant professor at University of Nebraska of Lincoln, holding split appointments in the Water Center, CSD, and the School of Natural Resources. She still serves as an adjunct professor in engineering and natural resources. Ann received her PhD in the, from the University of Wisconsin master's degree from UNL and from Penn State. She's still a registered uh, professional engineer in civil engineering. In addition to all this, Dr. Bleed serves as the Nebraska Boundary Compact Commission um, member and uh, state representative for the Missouri River Basin Association, Nebraska Environmental Trust Board, and the list goes on and on. On a personal note, I'd just like to say one thing. I know of no one in this state who's done more for water than Ann Bleed. Help me introduce her. Well, I feel very honored to be here today in this beautiful (laughs) facility. Um, talking about a topic that is extremely important to the Great Plains, and I just realized the clicker's over here. Formulating policy on the Great Plains, there's one thing that is a significant factor determining the quality of life on the Great Plains, and that's water, especially west of the 100th meridian, which bisects Nebraska. We have, in the past, had a fair amount of water, The problem has been that we haven't had the water at the right time and at the right place. Water in Nebraska can be very variable. and As you know, most of us walked out to come over here today and there was no snow and you got here and there was a blizzard. Precipitation is extremely variable. Stream flows can be high in the spring and gone in the summer when crops need the water. And this was a problem and still is a problem in Nebraska today. The people in Nebraska uh, wrote W.R. Acres in 1897 uh, were miserably poor, having emigrated from eastern Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas, in order to secure the benefits of the Homestead Act and believing that irrigation would not be necessary, or rather knowing absolutely nothing about irrigation, They undertook to farm, and for two or three years, there was enough rain to produce partial crops. In fact, in some localities, good crops. But in the years following, there was a terrible drought. These people, as a rule, were not in search of a place to irrigate. And when one who had some idea of what irrigation meant would dare suggest that irrigation would solve the question uppermost in the mines, you could hear, if I have to irrigate, I will emigrate instead. 
If I have to put so much money in a ditch in order to have a farm, I will go back to where God irrigates. However, there are some people that did rise to the occasion. Akers goes on in another biennial report for the State Board of Roads and Irrigation at the time to say the people, all non-believers in the business of irrigation and opposed entirely to the idea of irrigation, made the enterprise move very slowly. But little groups of men formed for the purpose of constructing ditches. In building these ditches, the people were reduced to such poverty that nearly every man who engaged in the building of a ditch was compelled to place a mortgage on his team to procure the means with which to feed his team and family while he worked. When you take into account the fact that country never had 500 voters and that not one half of the voters or landowners were interested in irrigation, and they were poorer than jackrabbits in summer, I say that the few irrigationists of Scotts Bluff County have accomplished more than I ever saw done by the same number of men in any country in my life. 148 miles of ditch built known by less than 200 men. You ask how this was done? I answer by organizing stock companies, selling the stock, and they paying for it almost entirely in work. Irrigation is the salvation of western Nebraska, and it is the hope of eastern Nebraska, said Akers. And in subsequent reports, this one in 19, uh, uh, or this one in 1897, I'm, sure, I'm sorry, they boasted about how irrigation made the difference in a corn crop. This was a corn crop on one side of the road that was not irrigated, and on the other side of the road it was irrigated. In 1913, the biennial reports show farmhouses that were improved through time because of irrigation. In the campaign of 1894, Senator Akers made the need for legislation his campaign issue. And what was the legislation? It was the uh, 1895 Water Rights Act. In this legislation, well, he advocated that we need from past experience and from history, we know that there are great difficulties that arise in other states by the reason of the fact there was no control of the waters of the state. Men appropriated or claimed to have appropriated all the waters of a stream, and other men appropriated and attempted to appropriate water after all the water was appropriated, and then conflicts arose and contentions, and men were killed standing upon the headworks of ditches. So we saw that something had to be done in Nebraska. We took for our guidance the law of control of Wyoming, which I have been assured today by the most eminent irrigator in the Northwest, was and is near perfect as a bill could possibly be. So in 1895, the state adopted uh, its first water uh, right system. This was a prior appropriation system, the first in time, first in right. It was based on the concept that water is a public resource. It's needed by all people to sustain life. Justice Greg Hobbs, who's a uh, Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court and a very noted water lawyer, talks about the prior appropriation system as arising from the imperative necessity of water scarcity in the Western region. It is based on the concept that water is a public resource dedicated to the beneficial use of public agencies and private persons wherever they might make beneficial use of the water under the use rights established as prescribed by law. 
1895 right said water is a public resource, but they allowed a right to use the water to be created as a private property right. And that was the prior appropriation system, which is often referred to as first in time, first in right. What that means is if when you come in to get a right to divert water from a stream, when you apply for the permit, you get a priority date attached to the permit based on the date of application. That determines your right to get water. When water is short, the person with the older or most senior right will get all the water they need up to their permitted amount. And then the next downstream junior will get some water. And it goes on until the water runs out. It's not a sharing system. The first senior rights get all the water they want up to their permitted right, even though a junior right gets absolutely nothing. So it was not a sharing system, but it provided certainty for how to administer water. And this was a big step forward uh, in the plains in those years. Along with the rights and diversions came the de development of canals. And what these canals did is they allowed people to take the water out of the river and put it on the land uh, instead of having the water just run down the river unused. And they were very important uh, to the um, irrigation uh, in the western part of the state. The problem is they still had a problem that the water would come with spring snow melt in the spring, May, June, and then by July and August when the corn crops or other crops needed water the most, it was all gone for the most part. So they started to build reservoirs. This is a picture of the Pathfinder Dam. You can see on the before picture what the gorge looked like before they built the dam. The dam was started in 1904. Um, and uh, it was quite a story on how to build this dam uh, in this high um, area in Wyoming, which you can see is extremely rocky. The dam is still a very important part of the water supply today. Uh, it's a beautiful dam. If you ever get a chance to visit it, I would really encourage you to do so. What this allowed was uh, for the snow melt from the Rockies to be stored in the uh, spring for later use in the summer. And also bigger and bigger canals were built uh, to carry the water um, to the crops. The uh, interstate canal, which diverts water from this uh, Pathfinder Dam, is 120 miles long. It starts in Wyoming and comes down into Nebraska. Although unplanned, return flows started to appear in the river. This is a diagram showing uh, how return flows work in the system. You have a stream down along here, and an irrigator will divert a certain amount of water and use it on the field. In the process of using that water on the field, some of it will go into consumptive use. That's evapotranspiration for the crop for the most part. But not all of that water goes to consumptive use. Some of it percolates down through the field uh, or runs off the surface of the field and returns to the stream. And that return flow is then available for the next person to divert. And those return flows are an extremely important water supply. Robert Willis, uh, who is a the state engineer, if you will, in charge of water administration for many years uh, out from Bridgeport, Nebraska, became fascinated by the return flows that were developing as these canals were being developed and filled. What he did, what this graph shows, um, is that in 1911 here, 
the visible return flows that he could see in ditches and drains that were dry except for the return flows coming from these projects were very small, and they increased uh, up to a high in uh, the 1920s, and then they went down into the dry 30s. But he was extremely impressed with these return flows. In 1927, Willis wrote, again in the uh, biennial report for the uh, Department of Irrigation and Roads at that time, that uh, he calculated that the visible return flow between the North Platte River on the North Platte River between the Wyoming State Line and Bridgeport, Nebraska, uh, was 630,000 acre-feet. Acre-feet of water is the amount of water that would spread over an acre of land to a depth of one foot. And later he forecast, and correctly as a matter of fact, that as return flows increased, administration of water rights as far east as Overton, Nebraska, would be significantly easier. Again, one, the water coming off of uh, one man's field becomes the next person's water supply. In the North Platte Decree, um, the opinion by the U.S. Supreme Court that was handed down in 1945 uh, recognized the importance of return flows. Nebraska, in that case, had asked for the decree to extend all the way down to Grand Island, and we were looking at the potential building of Lake McConaughey, and we wanted to make sure that we had enough water from Wyoming uh, for that project. But the uh, special master in that case determined that because of the return flows from diversions in Wyoming for these canals, there would be sufficient water below the state line in Nebraska to satisfy all the canals in Nebraska, including the new project of Lake McConaughey down to Grand Island. So the North Platte Decree stops at the state line. That is the importance of return flows for the supplies in the North Platte and many, many other uh, rivers in the state. So the canals really helped um, with um, maintaining supplies in the stream all the way down uh, to Nebraska, or to uh, Grand Island. And of course, another thing that has helped uh, supplies um, is the development of groundwater irrigation. This graph simply shows the um, number of wells uh, that have been registered in our department. Uh, there were not very many registered in the, or on the books, I should say, in 1930s or 40s. But then, as of um, the end of 2007, we had over 100,000 wells registered in the state of Nebraska. Uh, and, irrigation wells. And of course these wells occur all over the state. Each dot here represents a well. Um, in fact, the red areas uh, are where the wells are greater than 16 per square mile. You can see they also tend to follow river drainages. Uh, that is a good source of water for the wells uh, along the rivers. So in the 20th century, we had, for the most part, enough water to satisfy our demands. Yeah, there were dry years. And yeah, we had to work hard to get the water at the right place at the right time. But for the most part, we've been very blessed in Nebraska in having sufficient water to meet our needs in the 20th century. However, the 21st century brings a new challenge. First of all, we have new demands for water. Uh, in addition to our traditional concerns about how to, how to relocate water and retime water, um, we have increased our demand. We have more irrigated crops today. We have uh, larger populations. We have more uh, industrial uses. And in addition, 
we have recognized more than ever in the past the need for water for recreation and water for maintaining our fish and wildlife ecosystems. So that the demands have increased. At the same time, there's a strong possibility that the water supply in the future may be less than what we have come to rely on today. Analyses of tree ring data uh, for the last several hundred years indicate that the 20th century was one of the west, wettest periods on record. And the 1980s were one of the wettest decades of the 20th century. In, according to the T-ring data, in the 1100s, when the Anasazi population declined rapidly in the southwest, there was a drought, uh, or there are several droughts that were, we figure were about 60 years long. So one of the questions I think we have to ask ourselves today is what we have come, become used to from the 20th century. Is that the norm, or is that a wet period, and the norm is considerably drier? If you add to that the prospect of global warming, we have potentially increased challenges. The, uh, don't, we aren't exactly sure what global warming does um, in a local area like Nebraska. I keep asking my neighbor, Clint Rowe, sitting back there, so what does this mean for Nebraska? And he basically, and if I'm wrong, Clint, but you keep telling me we're not sure yet. But these are some of the um, estimates of what people might think. Temperatures are likely to increase. Consequently, stream flows will peak earlier with possible reductions in late season flows. The uh, seasonal flows from snowmelt felled rivers uh, in the west that were occurring four, week, are occurring four weeks earlier in 2002 than they did in 1948. Warmer temperatures will bring, uh, bring increased atmospheric moisture and increase global precipitation, but uh, nearer the equator, you may see less precipitation. Models of forecasting flows in the Colorado River um, indicate that there will be 10 to 40 percent reductions in flow over the next 50 years. And again, these are just models. They may or may not be right, but that certainly catches my attention, my, uh, uh, my curiosity, to say the least. Higher temperatures will also lead to higher evapotranspiration rates. Uh, the, uh, the National Oceanic—I never can get this right. The National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration um, researcher Roger Powati indicated that in the last 50 years—and this is historical 50 years—ET rates have increased three to four inches. That means there's more water evaporating into the air simply because of higher evapotranspiration rates. What will happen in the future is a question. One of the things that most people do agree on, um, and I haven't checked this one out with you, Clint, right? We, but that uh, rainfall intensity is expected to increase, but the number of days between precipitation events may decrease or may increase as well. So we are likely to have greater flooding and less recharge, and then greater periods be between precipitation events. And Clint's nodding his head yes there. So if we are to sustain a high quality of life in our children, for our children and grandchildren in Nebraska, what must we do? For one thing, we need to make sure that our water supplies are sufficient to meet our water demands. 
that balance is critically important over the long term. So how do we do that? If we're going to do that, we're going to have to recognize, first of all, that surface water and groundwater are hydrologically connected. They are two components of the same system. Uh, and where they are hydrologically connected, we have to manage them as one resource. We also need to do basin-wide planning. We can no longer think only in terms of one local area. We have to look at bigger basin um, inter interactions. We also have to understand that surface water flows do not necessarily coincide either in direction or quantity with groundwater flows. Just because surface water is flowing in one direction on the surface of the land doesn't mean that that's the way the groundwater flow is occurring underneath the land. They are two different things, and that can make the complexity of water administration um, kind of interesting, to say the least. And then we also have to recognize that surface water and groundwater does not adhere to nice institutional boundaries. It tends to cross jurisdictional boundaries. In fact, the legislature recognized that water would cross jurisdictional boundaries when they created the natural resources districts, which were primarily created along surface water boundaries. But they said, the legislature recognizes that groundwater use or surface water use in one natural resources district may have adverse effects on water supplies in another district. And the intent legislation goes on to say that the legislature intends and expects that each natural resources district within which water use is causing external impacts will accept responsibility for groundwater management in accordance with the Nebraska Groundwater Management Protection Act in the same manner and to the same extent as if the impacts were contained within that, di that district. In 2004, the governor, Governor Johan, signed a new integrated management law, um, or enacted a new, signed the law so it was enacted into place. This law was developed by the Water Resource Policy Task Force, which was a task force of 49 individuals from across the state representing a wide variety of interests, surface water users, groundwater users, cities, recreation, uh, environmental uh, uses, uh, and power and industry. Uh, the law task force was charged with trying to determine whether the existing laws in the state were sufficient to uh, avoid conflicts or reduce conflicts that already existed between surface water users and groundwater users and move us forward into the 21st century. The, one of the things that the task force did was look at the existing legal structures. And one of the questions... Uh, this was uh, the legal structure that they were looking at. Again, surface water, dedicated to the public, first in time, first in right. It's also a use it or lose it uh, law. If you don't use your surface water for a number of years, you lose the right to use it. And it's administered by the State Department of Natural Resources. Groundwater is also dedicated to the public in our law, but it goes under a reasonable use or correlative rights system. This is not first in time, first in right. It's a sharing of the resource when water is short. So the well that was put in 80 years ago and the well that was put in yesterday, if water is short, they will get the same amount of water. 
That's the basis of the correlative right system. So certainly not first in time, first in right. You have the right to use groundwater for use on overlying land. And the regulation of groundwater is subject to local control under the natural resources districts. So one of the things the task force looked at is, can this dual system, in fact, work so that we can uh, move forward and manage our water resources, especially to manage them in an integrated fashion between surface water and groundwater? There are a lot of questions, and some people said, no, you can't do that. Some people said it is too difficult for local boards to regulate themselves. They'll never do it, so the state has to do it for them. Some people said there's too much disparity be among rules between the natural resources districts, which makes it very difficult for a person to know which rule they have to work under. And then, of course, the issue of how you deal with water that flows across jurisdictional boundaries when you have three, 23 different jurisdictions in the state that um, divide the groundwater, and the groundwater boundaries and the surface water boundaries do not coincide. So those were some of the questions that the task force looked at. The task force decided, in essence, to keep the existing system. And some of the reasons that the task force, and I agree with these reasons, thought that this was a good idea to keep groundwater in charge uh, or under the auspices of local control is because it allows local decision making. And there's some advantages to that. Local decisions. Um, Generally, uh, can be, uh, get your, you can get local input. You can reflect the local values of the people uh, in the basin. You can uh, tailor the rules and regulations to the local hydrologic conditions. Uh, you often get more creativity because you have more people involved in trying to resolve the issues and come up with good solutions. You can be more flexible to adapt to changing conditions and you have more local buy-in because the laws are developed by the people themselves. Those are all very important um, aspects of local control that are maintained in the ground regulation of groundwater by the local natural resources districts. However, the task force did decide that we did need to have a, more of a push from the state they thought it was important that the state give the nudge to a local natural resources district, if necessary, to ensure that a basin did not become fully appropriated. So they told the Department of Natural Resources and the law that we have to evaluate the basins of the state and determine which ones uh, are fully appropriated. If a basin is fully appropriated, it immediately triggers a temporary stay on the issuance of new surface water permits, a temporary stay on the issuance of new well or construction of new wells on the expansion of irrigated acres, and you have to start developing an integrated management plan uh, involving both the Department of Natural Resources and the affected natural resources districts. This is a map showing the basins in the state that are currently considered to be fully appropriated. The um, red areas here um, have been uh, fully appropriated, some for a number of years. Tri-basin, that green area, is not officially um, doing an integrated management plan, but they are doing a plan to integrate surface water and groundwater uses. 
The white areas of the state have not been determined to be fully appropriated. This pink area is uh, under review um, by the department. We have to make a determination by the end of this week whether the Niobrara is considered to be fully appropriated. Now, what do I mean by fully appropriated? Essentially, that's where the supply and the use are in balance. And what that means is if you allow a new consumptive use to come into that basin, if you've caught it at just the right time, the only way you can have a new consumptive use is to take water away from an existing user and undermine the infrastructure or the investment that that user has made in that existing use. The idea is to catch basins before we are taking away the water rights or the rights to water that people have by undermining that water supply. One of the required goals of the integrated management plan that um, has to be developed by the Department of Natural Resources, this is required by statutes, is that there should be clear goals and objectives in the plan with the purpose of sustaining a balance between water supplies and uses so that the economic viability, social and environmental health, safety and welfare of the river basin can be achieved and maintained for both the near term and the long term. So sustainability is a very important underpinning of the integrated water management law. And this works fairly well if you catch a basin before it's over-appropriated. One of the things that happens uh, in a fully appropriated basin is you have to develop transfers. If you don't allow water to move from one use to another, essentially you would be shutting down development period. If somebody wanted to come in with a new industrial use or irrigate better land in one part of the district that hadn't been irrigated before, and you aren't allowed to increase the consumptive use, the only way you can do that, make, have that allowance, is to transfer use from one area to the other. So one of the things in the integrated management plans that will be very important is to allow transfers of water from one user to another. We've been doing this for years in both groundwater, particularly in the Upper Republican Natural Resources Districts, and in surface water and with surface water rights. There's one aspect of... Um, there are several legal constraints on how you do transfers, and the key aspect of most of those legal constraints, and this is true throughout the West, is that in the process of transferring, you cannot injure a third party. If you transfer water from one part to the other, you've got to make sure you do it so you do not take the water supply away from another irrigator or appropriator. Uh, usually compensation is involved. The State Department of Natural Resources does not get involved in what, what kind of money changes hands. We just make sure that a third party isn't uh, injured. Third party injury gets back in great amount to the return flow issue. Again, if I transfer a water right and don't ensure that this return flow is still there for the next downstream user, I'm taking away the water available for the next user. So one of the things we do, and this is done throughout Western water law, is you only transfer the amount of water consumed. Because that water was consumed, it wasn't available for the next downstream user. You try to leave the return flow in place if the absence of that return flow would harm the next downstream user. All this is very well and good, but what about basins that we didn't catch in time? 
basins where the uses outstrip the supply that are over-appropriated. We have one in the state of Nebraska, and that's on the Platte River, essentially above Elm Creek, about here. The red line shows the surface water boundary of the over-appropriated area. The blue is the area considered of groundwater that's considered to be hydrologically connected. In those areas of the state, we've already outstripped the supply. And the law requires an over-appropriated basin to reduce consumptive use until we get back in balance between supply and use. How do you do that? Well, there, it's not easily done, but there are basically three ways to do it, as far as I can see. One is to augment the supply. Another is to reduce the non-beneficial consumptive use of the supply. And then the final one is to reduce the beneficial consumptive uses of the supply. Obviously, the last one is something you would prefer not to do. Augmentation, a lot of uh, augmentation plans rely on the importation of water from one basin to another. However, there are legal restrictions on importing water from one basin to another. Surface water, existing surface water appropriations cannot, by state law, be transferred out of basin. So you'd have to have a new water use to transfer. Groundwater can only be transferred from one basin to another if the natural resources district from which the water is coming and the natural resources district to which the water is going both agree. So those are fairly big constraints on interbasin transfers because most people in the state are not really anxious to give their water to another basin. Uh, other things that you can do is cloud seeding, and that is being investigated fairly seriously in a number of western states. Nebraska has not done a lot of that. Uh, there's some speculation about doing it. There are some definite um, problems involved with cloud seeding, and I won't go into that today, but it might be an option in the future. Uh, reducing non-beneficial consumptive use is a big issue. One thing I want to point out is irriga increasing irrigation efficiency is not necessarily reducing non-beneficial consumptive use. And what happens when you increase irrigation efficiency, you're increasing the ability to get water to a crop so the crop can make better use of whatever water you pump. If you, in fact, reduce the amount of water you're pumping to begin with and can still grow the same crop, you are probably saving water. If, however, you're pumping the same amount of water but irrigating more crops because now you can get more water to the crops at a time when the crop can usually use it, you're increasing consumptive use of water. So you have to be careful. Irrigation efficiency does not equate to actually saving water. To save water, you actually have to look at saving the non-beneficial portion of the water. If this is what is diverted or pumped, as I said before, some of it goes up into ET, some of it runs off into deep perk, some of that deep perk is probably lost to the system or to weeds or so forth. But here, you see deep percolation going to recharge, uh, runoff that goes back to the stream, that is reused for, by the next downstream user in the return flow. Some of this ET is beneficial ET for growing the crops, etc. So this is the part you have to work with if you're really going to save water through irrigation efficiency. And that's uh, not a great amount of water, and it's fairly difficult to do. But it can be done and is being done, and there's a lot of research at the University of Nebraska that's looking into that. Um, 
Here's one common way of reducing non-beneficial use of water to have drop structures so you're on your center pivot so you're not spraying the water in the air uh, to evaporate. Another thing the state is doing um, uh, as a result of a bill passed in the legislature last year is uh, removing vegetation from stream channels. This not only increases the ability of the channel to convey water, it also gets rid of invasive weeds, but the concept is that maybe by reducing some of this vegetation will also reduce consumptive use. However, there are questions involved with this. One of the problems is if you remove the vegetation, you've got to make sure that new vegetation doesn't come in that uses more water than the vegetation you removed. So you may end up having to keep removing the vegetation, which can become expensive. But it is something we are looking at um, as a potential way of conserving or of reducing the non-beneficial use of water. Um, there's a lot of interest in conjunctive use projects to retime supplies. The difference now uh, in most of what people are looking at today than what they looked at in the 1900s is we're looking at trying to use uh, groundwater aquifers to store the water with intentional recharge, thus reducing the surface water evaporation from the aquifer. And there's a lot of work going on uh, between the department and natural resources districts um, and the Bureau of Reclamation is involved to some extent too to see if we can make better use of the water supplies we have through conjunctive use and intentional recharge. Finally, you can reduce the beneficial consumptive uses. This is where it gets tough. And this is what I'm afraid we are going to have to do to some extent on uh, our over-appropriated basin in the Platte and also in the Republican to comply with the Republican River Compact. Basically, there are two ways to do this. You can, um, you can do it through regulation uh, by saying you can only use so much water or you can do it by reducing um, the number of acres a person irrigated. This is through regulation. The alternative, of course, is you might be able to do it through a willing seller, willing buyer transfer process, and that, again, is preferred. Um, but one of the problems with that is you need money to do it. You need money to buy the water right out for someone else. But the only way to reduce consumptive use is... Um, for beneficial uses are either by the transfer process or by some kind of regulation, none of which is cheap. The transfer process is expensive because you have to come up with water to buy the water rights, but regulation is not without its cost. It's cost in terms of the profit foregone by people who have invested expecting to use a certain amount of water and they now no longer can use that water. However, if we are going to reduce conflict and reduce the uncertainty of the water supply in the future, we are going to have to find ways to balance our supply and use so that we can sustain our, both our supplies and our uses into the future. Both the state and the natural resources districts are involved in this, and both the state and the natural resources district must accept their responsibilities. One thing I have heard lately in response to the Republican River Compact issues that we're facing in the state is that this, it's a state problem, and the state should solve the problem. I would argue that the state gave the authority to regulate groundwater to natural resources districts. The state of, uh, Department of Natural Resources does not regulate groundwater. 
in delegating that authority, the natural resources districts are part of the state. So they do have to accept their responsibility in solving this problem. That's not to say that the state shouldn't help out as much as we can, but it has to be a joint responsibility um, by both the natural resources districts and the state of Nebraska. And I would like, a, as a side note, to say that in the Republican basin, the natural resources districts are just in the process of um, passing new integrated management plans, which have substantial burdens on the NRD in order to comply with the compact. And I am very, um, have a great deal of admiration for those local boards who are making those very, very tough decisions to say, yes, we will cut back on our consumptive use. They, it will have an impact on their lives and their economy, but they are accepting that responsibility and they deserve recognition for that. Finally, we need communication and cooperation among all stakeholders in the basin. This is incredibly important. We can't just look at irrigators. We can't just look at municipalities. We all need to sit down at the table and work together and communicate if we're going to come up with plans that will work. These plans need to be flexible. We have new challenges. We need the flexibility to meet those new challenges. That doesn't, um, we will need new institutions. And in again, in the Republican basin, the surface water users are working together in a coalition to see what they can do to perhaps come up with a better way of managing surface water basin-wide. We can do those things without changing the law. We don't need to change the law to allow some of the flexibility and management and creative solutions of the kind I'm talking about. We need to be more holistic in our thinking. We need to recognize that surface water and groundwater is one integrated supply and that surface water users and groundwater users are both using the same supply and they have absolutely got to start working together to ensure that the supply is available for both uses in the future. Can we be as dedicated and creative as the early pioneers? Are we willing to make the similar sacrifices that they made when they got together in their small groups and went into debt simply to build a canal? That's the challenge we're looking at in the future. And I am optimistic that Nebraskans will rise to the challenge and be creative and do what it takes and make the sacrifices we need so we can continue the good life into the future. Thank you. Anyone have any questions for Ann? The question is, how can the upper plat be over-appropriated, but the lower plat not be um, fully appropriated? And I assume you're referring to the recent decision by the Department of Natural Resources that the lower plat is not fully appropriated. In making that decision under state law, we have to look at whether the existing surface water appropriators or groundwater users um, have sufficient water to meet their beneficial purposes. And based on that criterion, the, there is sufficient water in the lower plat at the moment to meet all the, surface, the beneficial surface water appropriators and the groundwater users. Now, what you're probably also thinking is that the Game and Parks, and I know there's some folks from Game and Parks here, um, Game and Parks Commission is concerned about endangered species on the lower plat. And this is where the um, subtleties of the law come to play. In order to 
say that an action is subject to the State Endangered Species Act. It has to be a specific action for which we can develop a reasonable and prudent alternative, such as drilling a well or issuing a surface water permit, etc. The decision that the plat was not fully appropriated was not a specific action, and therefore was not subject to the Endangered Species Act. However, if we issue or want to issue a surface water permit, we will, as we have done for years in the past, send that surface water permit to the Game and Parks Commission, <coughs> and they will tell us whether or not that issuing that permit may affect a threatened or an endangered species. And if they say, yes, it is a may affect, we will go into formal consultation with Game and Parks Commission, and if it is potential jeopardy, we will craft a reasonable and prudent alternative, if we can, to um, no action or so that we can issue the permit for that specific action. And that will start happening, uh, I assume, pretty soon um, with um, the Game and Parks uh, new decision on the impact of new depletions on the endangered species and the pallid sturgeon, and leech tern, and pike and cover. Under Nebraska law, interestingly enough, natural resources districts are not subject to the Endangered Species Act. There, the question was, if you uh, decrease vegetation along the streams too much, is that not going to create further problems? And the potential is there. Uh, more sediment in the stream, more erosion, uh, because vegetation holds the stream back together. And in fact, um, the Department of Natural Resources is cooperating with the University of Nebraska on a grant before the Environmental Trust to look into the, some of the impacts of vegetation removal. And yes, that could be a problem. We need to be careful in how we do that. Right now, we're focusing on removing vegetation from in the channel. And that is vegetation that we, we um, normally could release 2,000 cubic feet per second of water from Harlan Lake without any flooding. With the increased uh, vegetation in the channel itself, we released 400 cubic feet per second last year, and there was low-lying flooding, and the water didn't get to where it needed to be. So right now we're focusing on the channel, but yes, that is a problem. Question. The, the basic question was that Lincoln probably gets most of its water from the Platte River, which is true. Uh, is there concern on the part of Lincoln that... Um, we need to make sure that we have water for the future. I'm looking at Jerry Obers back there. I think the easy answer is yes, but Lincoln has done a fairly good job to date of trying to plan for that. Is that fair, Jerry? Yes. <laughs> but yes, I'm sure the city of Lincoln is concerned, and I know Jerry keeps coming up to meetings where that type of things that could impact the city supply are being discussed, so I'm sure they're concerned. The question is how do ethanol plants factor into uh, the future use of water on the Great Plains. Uh, I won't get into the economics of the ethanol plant. I'll stick to the water side. Uh, I am very concerned about um, the impact of ethanol plants on water. Um, not so much for what the plant itself uses, but if it's using corn, the water that is needed to grow the amount of corn um, used by the ethanol plant, that's where the biggest amount of water comes, uh, use comes. Um, so that it, you've got to weigh the good and the bad with the ethanol plants. Um, they have, are a boon to the economy, 
They do uh, create a lot of water use, and the balance there is a tricky question.